HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, my mother, Bobby Comforto. And my daughter, Zara Tangora. Hello, Bobby. How are you? Hi, Zaz. I'm good today. How are you? You look cozy. Do you feel cozy? Well, today off. It's it's Friday. It's cold outside. I also had a walk this morning and saw all the leaves and the sun, and I got to see the, lun- the lunar eclipse last you night. You did? Yeah. So I'm, wow. fe- I'm feeling... How did you make do that? You were up in the middle of the night? I was up at four, and that's when the skies cleared, and I could see it. It was really great. How cool. Yeah. It's called like a raccoon moon? I don't know. I didn't see that name. I don't know. It's like something. I don't think it's raccoon, but it's some kind of like nocturnal animal that I was like, wow, I can't believe that's what it's called. It's like some kind of animal moon. Well, that's really exciting. A lunar eclipse. I feel exciting around nature. It's just so exciting to me. Well, it was supposedly, I didn't see it when it first started, but supposedly the moon was very, very red. I saw it towards the end when it was coming out of it. And it was just, you could tell that it was shadowed. And then all of a sudden, a little while later, it was the brightest, brightest full moon. So that was exciting. And I feel nature is beautiful today. The colors of the leaves and the sun is bright. So I feel good. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. It is one of the, we just spoke about this briefly in the episode that we're doing today. But I also really just took such note of the the beautiful specialness of fall mm-hmm. this morning. Mm-hmm. And that bright blue sky and those bright red and yellow leaves. It's just, it's really, it's quite magical here in the Northeast. And it's always a time when I feel very lucky to, for the seasons. And so fall is a beautiful season. And we were lucky to have our show today. Our guest was so interesting. Loved our guest today. Carla Fernandez, the co-founder of The Dinner Party, uh, joins us today. And what an incredible conversation about food and grief. Couldn't really... Uh, ask for anything that is more about food and grief. And um, we're so impressed with Carla and what she's helped to create with the dinner party. And it was really just such an honor to have her on. I was lucky enough to get to meet Carla before the show, like a month, about a month ago for a coffee and uh, really just felt one of those like instant connections. Like, Hey, I've, I feel like I've known you forever and she's funny and she's warm and she's very bright and mm-hmm. very intelligent and uh, extremely heartfelt. And it's such a big, uh, one question that I did not get to ask her, which I really wanted to, and I hope I'm going to ask her now and maybe she'll answer (laughs) privately. 
um, is that I'm so curious about what, I mean, I guess she kind of does answer it a bit, um, without being directly asked, but it's such, um, an incredible and unique thing to feel, um, I guess maybe people do it in other ways, start starting scholarships and, and such. But when you uh, experience such a significant loss to feel promoted to start a project, you know, success, to handle and, be a it success. In that way. and for it to be a success and to affect other people mm-hmm. and to continue to impact other people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That kind of drive is very interesting. And, um, you know, I guess she does talk to us a bit about, uh, you know, her personality and what, what, fuels her so we get a little bit of an understanding about that but man Carla is just wonderful and it was such a dream to speak with her and what she's doing and what her other co-founders are doing at the dinner party and all the people who are working uh at the nonprofit, it's really fantastic we really recommend that you check them out and uh support them they are as Carla mentions at the end of the show are doing their yearly membership drive uh definitely urge everybody if you can to donate to that and yeah it was just a great talk mm-hmm. wonderful thank you carla yeah thank you and as we are gearing up for thanksgiving i'm realizing this is gonna be our thanksgiving episode mm. which is really it's nice perfect. and bobby yeah bobby and i are gonna get to spend thanksgiving together with uh my stepdad and, and bobby's husband rob and our dear family friend kathy who's been on the show twice mm-hmm. two-time guest mm-hmm. kathy bodley mm-hmm. <clears throat> and a good friend of mine and uh, yeah, it's it should be lovely. And for all of you, kind of you know, who are listening, many of you, I'm sure, have had grief experiences, or maybe some of you, Thanksgiving is difficult to deal with. And we are just sending you love and reminding you to be nice to yourself as much as possible and patient with yourself. Mm-hmm, good advice. And re- look, if you can, to try to look at yourself from covering above yourself and hopefully that can help give you some compassion towards yourself like oh this person is dealing with some big feelings and some hard feelings and some traumatic experiences give this person a break and you know there's a lot of expectation around the holidays a to perform to show up to feel happy to enjoy to you know what i mean and it's 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 fucking hard be kind to be kind to yourself great advice perfect yeah and and you know what and others mm-hmm. and others mm-hmm. because others are having a hard time now too. And it's easy to say, Oh, this guy is a jerk or right. this woman in the grocery store was such an asshole. And you know, maybe they are those things, but like a lot of people are suffering right now, you know, and a lot mm-hmm. of people, we have 700,000 people who have passed away in this country in the past two years from just one thing from COVID. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? The way this, affects families especially in this kind of first year back to somewhat normalcy of gathering it's hard for people now so let's also try as best we can to be empathetic and caring towards our neighbors amen amen love beautiful yeah um okay we love you guys so much please enjoy our talk with carla and carla thank you so much for joining us uh it was a real it was a real pleasure thank you Well, what a wonderful guest we have with us today. Uh, We are joined 
this morning by Carla Fernandez. Carla is the co-founder of The Dinner Party, which is a national community of 20 to 40-somethings who have lost parents, siblings, partners, children, friends um, at any period of time in their life. And Carla, we are so, we've been following uh, The Dinner Party and what you've been doing for a while now, and we're so happy to have connected. Thank you for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I was so happy to stumble upon the podcast and Zara, it was great getting to meet you a couple weeks ago, month ago. Yeah. What is time? I know. It felt like an instant connection though. Like we kind of met for a a cup of coffee and sat in Fort Greene Park for a while and it was like one of those kind of just, I was like, I've known this person forever. (laughs) Yeah. Grief nerds unite. (laughs) (laughs) Grief nerds do unite. Yeah, it's really wonderful to have you. So where are you? You're joining us from... Upstate New York, yeah? Yeah, I'm in Kingston, New York, in my office here. So, yeah. Love Kingston. We have a, I have a best friend who is in Kingston and uh, just a good community of people up there. But it's, it's wonderful. And you were mentioning when we met that you kind of transitioned your life up to Kingston during the pandemic, yeah? Me and everybody else. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I started the pandemic with my partner on the West Coast. We were living in Oakland and he grew up in the Hudson Valley, and this seemed like the right time to kick the tires of the idea, the dream that he'd had of, of being based up here. And so we drove across the country in July of 2020 and have kind of set up shop. And I told him I'd give him a year before we like would move back to the West Coast, but we're both loving it here so much that we're kind of settling in. It's amazing. One of those interesting kind of things of the trauma of the past almost two years now and the kind of decisions that we make during a traumatic time. And like, they're like, okay, well you, it's like, what do you grab before you leave the house in a way, you know, but like, what do you grab before you like leave your life and what should we do and what makes sense in this kind of like really intense period of time. And I'm glad once the dust settled that it felt, it still feels like a good choice. And one of kind of, I guess, a silver lining in a very terrible time is getting to change your life in a, in a way that feels good and positive. So congratulations to you guys for that hey thanks and yeah it feels really good to be on the east coast and it was a not an anticlimactic time to move across the country we sort of felt like we left in the middle of the night you know no there were no going away parties being held and when we landed we were quarantining and um but it's been nice to be able to come out of our shell and see all the good folks that are here and get to yeah. It's a nice community. So tell us a little bit about where you started. Like, where did you grow up? What was the beginning of your, what was your formative years like? Those formative ones? Yes, those formatives. Um, <laughs> my parents are both New Yorkers originally. My mom grew up in Poughkeepsie, my dad, Brooklyn. And we moved to California when I was really young. I was like, you know, three or four. Uh, my dad was in the wine business and the wine business brought him west. And I spent I grew up in a town called Monterey, California, in Central California, um, which is beautiful. Didn't appreciate it at the time. Now I go home and I'm like, what is this rehab that is available to me? <laughs> um, so, and then I um, came back to New York for college. And when I was a senior in college, my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. So I ended up graduating, moving in with him. He was living in San Francisco at the time. Um, and was a caretaker with him through the end of his life. And he was, I was 21 when he died. And it kind of, then I began my adulthood, I guess, after that. 
um, that kind of christening moment mm-hmm. and um, moved down to LA because I feel like a lot of people when they don't know what to do or where to go, just kind of end up moving to Los Angeles um, and had a, had a really amazing decade there where the dinner party formed and made a really beautiful community. And yeah. And now I've ping ponged back to the other, to yeah. the other side of the country. Question. So, you know, I, when my dad died, I was 34. Um, and that's, I know even at that time, how it felt like, I'm not ready for this. I'm too young for this to happen. You know, like I'm not really prepared and just kind of is interesting to me. You're saying it was thrust into adulthood, but like, you're still, I mean, 21 is a, is a baby. It's like a really young person. Um, do you, do you feel like you were actually ready for the adult kind of, um, responsibilities, emotional responsibilities and emotional heavy lifting that comes along with not just like losing a parent, but actually we were talking about caretaking for someone who's, you know, has terminal cancer, especially brain cancer. That's a huge thing. I I mean, no one can be ready for it, but I guess like my question is just what sprung, what new things sprung up emotionally for you in terms of growing up and maturity and your handle on the world being so young at that time? Mm. Yeah, it was an interesting, the timing was interesting because I had graduated from college and most of my friends were getting their first jobs or going backpacking or like the things that one does um, when they're 21. And there was a real clarity of this is what I need to do, uh, moving back in with my dad and caring for him. It didn't really feel like, I know now that I had a choice, I made a choice to, I had um, accepted a job offer in New York after college and ended up turning it down to move back in with him. And I don't think anything can really prepare you for that kind of time with someone, you know, no matter your age, especially in the culture that we live in, which you both know is not great at preparing us for the inevitable. And, you know, for at the time, all four of my grandparents were alive, which meant that I'd never seen a parent lose a parent. I'm not going to say had you had any other losses. Not significant ones, um, which I now mm-hmm. realize shows like the level of privilege from which I come that like I lived in a safe place and there wasn't violence where I lived. And, you know, I now realize that for 21 year olds who are experiencing grief for the first time, it means that like there's a certain level of protection and shelter and privilege in my world, which is very real. Um, and yet it meant that when we got that diagnosis, we all kind of looked at each other and were like, what is this mean? And what is this going to do to us? And how do we ride this together? Um, so yeah. And maybe there was a little beginner's mind that I brought to it, you know, because I didn't have, sort of scar tissue from other loss experiences. I was able to just kind of like raise my hand and jump in and um, see it all with a a fresh perspective, I guess. Yeah. And I guess previous losses can be both. You know, we can certainly learn things from our own parents if we watch them with their losses. Um, And also you're right. It can be scar tissue. It's a good way of putting it. So did you have anybody else in your life with you doing this or was it you and your dad? It was me and my dad and my stepmom. Um, my dad, my parents divorced when I was young, and my dad had been remarried for about ten years. And I have two siblings, um, 
neither of them were present sort of in the day-to-day at the time. But it was me and my dad and my stepmom. And we, my stepmom and I were close. And that experience made us even closer. And I feel very fortunate that the person that my dad chose to remarry was like really able to roll up her sleeves and be there for him and for me during that time. She's amazing. I could imagine that have could have gone in a lot of different directions. And the more people I talk to who've experienced, you know, the combination of grief and shifting parent relationships and remarriage, there's, I've heard a lot of hard stories. So I, I was lucky in that in that dynamic. Yeah. You know, I want to just go back to something you said, and it was a kind of a quick statement, but it was really profound, stuck with me when you said it. Um, when you were pondering kind of, you know, what is this and what will this do to us? And I think that that is a question that, I don't know, did you, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you actually wondered that at the time or not, but it really does like losing someone close to you and having a traumatic experience and a really big grief experience, like what it does to like the us, like the, you know, the royal us, like um, ourselves and how it changes the rest of our lives and what it does to families. And that is so different like depending on the type of loss, of course, you know, but whether it like changes your life in a, in a way that can ultimately be positive in a way that is, you know, harmful, a combination of both, which I feel like is often the case, it does really change you. It is one of those moments that after this, nothing is the same. And I think that's like an underlying thing that we kind of know and can't quite accept at the time because it's too humongous. It's almost like the realization that we're on a ball in the middle of, you know, endless blackness and nothingness. You know what I mean? It's just one of those things. But um, how did it kind of end up changing you? And was that something that you were able to realize in the moment or is that kind of something that you've realized after the fact? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember the temperature in the room when my dad told us that the test results had come back and it was brain cancer. Like there's a vi- very vivid before and after feeling in that time in all of our lives. And I was really lucky, I think, because my dad set the tone for the family and was very much like, uh, without being Pollyanna-ish, was able to... We were all kind of looking to him for like, how is he feeling about this? And how are we going to feel about this? And he really kind of, the entire time for, of his sickness, the year that he was ill, he really kind of lived with a spirit of like, even if it's not okay, it's still going to be okay. In the moment? Yeah, in the moment. Like, even if this is the end, like, it's going to be okay. And that's something that I have held I don't think I could have learned that lesson unless I was actually like, wow, the worst case scenario is happening right now. And yet we can still find moments of like connection and grace and love and laughter. And that all sounds very chuggy, the nouns that I'm using, but, um, yeah. And there was also some repair that he was able to do like relational repair within my family. You know, for example, I hadn't slept under the same roof as both of my parents since I was a really small child. And, um, we ended up, my, my parents ended up having some really important repair conversations and spent some significant time together at the end that probably wouldn't have happened if they had both just like lived out their lives till they were 95. Um, 
and I don't say any of this to like silver lining what he went through. And it was definitely, he was 56 when he died, but it did show me that like, even in the shittiest of circumstances, we have a choice. And I, I carry that with me through all of the bullshit that I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. That like, there is always a choice. It's like Victor Frankl says, right? It's the last of our human freedoms is the choice we have in that moment. And I, I think also it's the spirit. You know, there, we can gather spirit in this unbelievable time when there's so much loss, you know, because our hearts are so in it. Our hearts, we care so much. And I always think of it like a web mm-hmm. of people's hearts and it kind of can really lift a family. You know, it's amazing that your mom and dad had some healing at the end. That's really a beautiful story. Mm, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I think of it like I just had this image pop into my head when you were talking about that. And it's like, I think of, I had this like flashback to when I was younger and I used to be so scared of things when I was younger. Now I feel like I'm really not really scared of much. I have one fear, but I'm not willing to admit it on air in case we have any, any uh, hate listeners. Now I'm very <laughs> I'll tell curious. you off air. Um, but when I was younger, I was scared of a lot of things. And I remember like going to Splish Splash, our local Long Island water park and going on, being on, on the top of the slide and being so afraid to go on. And then remembering like halfway through, you're in this like long twisty slide and it's like kind of, it's not so bad. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh wait, shit, there's like another weird dark corner we're going around. Like, what's this going to be like? I run around the corner. Okay. This is kind of, you know, not like this part is fun. Not that it's ever fun. You know what I mean? But I think like the letting go in the certain moments after a corner turns, it just, I don't know. I just had this flashback to thinking about the mystery of like a scary experience. And sometimes it's just not as bad as you thought you can get off of it. You're like, well, I did that. Look at that thing. I just went down. That was, that's crazy. Mm. I believe I just flung down there. Okay. That sounds fun. We Break out your water wings. <laughs> Let's go. Um, yeah, I remember uh, finding George Bonanno's research. Mm-hmm. Um, who, he's at Columbia. Uh, Bobby, I bet you've come across yes, his work. And he wrote this book called The Other Side of Sadness. Mm-hmm. And he's, I think, I will probably botch this to some degree, but he's one of the first researchers to actually look at how grief impacts people like before and after. So a body of research that is looking at how people are anticipating the feeling of someday losing someone and then actually losing someone. And when people, a lot of the feedback that he heard was folks were like, it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And am I, is it okay that I'm haven't completely gotten the wind knocked out of me and that I'm not just like spending years weeping. And um, I feel like the way grief is portrayed culturally is like this really kind of, I think it's getting better for sure, but the grief that I remember having witnessed on TV and movies is just purely like those one note of sorrow. Um, and it's actually so many different um, feelings and can come across in so many different ways. And it was helpful for me to read his research to be like, okay, the part of me that is like not completely broken by this experience is like, uh, it's okay. You have a couple of theories about that. You know, one of it is that when we look at things, we look at it as a big thing, even the holidays or dying or, but actually it's a series of so many losses that we traverse moment by moment by moment. And I think if you look at it that way, you don't have to handle it as one big thing. It's event by event by event. And as you know, when there's, we're taking care of somebody who's, who's sick and dying, there are so many losses along the way, you know, from the, as you say, the first diagnosis to when they stop 
be able to, you know, move around the way they used to. Um, I also used to describe that when a person's dying, it's almost like when birth, a baby starts to see a little bit more of the world and a little bit more of the world. And then as somebody's dying, they see less and less and they begin to pull in to get ready for their journey. And I think you see these stages of the person who's dying too. They're going step by step. So I think it makes it easier to manage. I love that. The, the, the idea of we grieve like event by event. Um, and that like, it's, I, I was recent, my brother got married a couple of years and I had this a couple of years ago and I had this big grief wave leading up to his wedding and remember being like, what the heck? Like it's been 10 years and this is supposed to be a purely happy affair. And why is it that I'm like, need to go into the bathroom and like lock the door and put my head between my knees. And I remember being like, oh, I've never seen my brother get married and have our dad not be in the room. And I'd never yet experienced what that aspect of grief felt like within my family dynamic. And um, it really reminds me of what you were just sharing, Bobby, of like, there's going to be more first times. I always tell people we have our whole lives to grieve. We do. We have our whole mm-hmm. lives. And as you say, it happens at all different moments. Um, I remember seeing my mom once 50 years after her daughter had died. I had a sister that died very young. And I took her to a cemetery, the cemetery, 50 years later. And she grieved. It was a moment as if it had just happened. But she didn't grieve all in between. It wasn't like that. She lived all the way along the line. So, yep, we have our whole lives to grieve. Carla, so your father was in the wine business, you mentioned, and your grandparents owned a luncheonette in Brooklyn. And so food has seemingly been a part of your life growing up. Um, what was it? What was like family? And also like myself, your child, actually some similarities, right? My parents were also cooks and in the food business, but also divorced when I was out of, when I was a very young age. So like, I personally always kind of knew food was around somewhere and I knew it was important and special and there were certain ways which we would celebrate it, but it wasn't the kind of like, we were chefs, so let's all sit down for this gorgeous Sunday dinner. What was your kind of experience having some of the background with food, but having, you know, your parents have split early? What was your kind of growing up food experience like? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I think that, you know, the, the Monday to Friday was like my mom working, being a single mom in some ways. I think she probably identify as a single mom. Um, I'm thinking about like, you know, fish sticks and like nineties, what does, what do working moms prepare for their kids? Um, she's amazing. She's a great cook, but it wasn't like the primary focus of our week to week. And then when we'd spend the weekends with my dad, his way of unwinding was like, spending the afternoon preparing a meal and opening up a bottle of wine. And he kind of was a, he'd hold court a little bit. And that was really his space to be able to talk about big ideas and unpack what was going on in the world. And so we were really a family that from, from a young age, I was expected to kind of be at the table and be participating in conversation and, you know, not like slank away to play video games, but to really like be there and listen. And, you know, it wasn't, every Saturday, but it happened often enough that I really found that it created a real place of sanctuary and connection. And, you know, I think some of our best moments happened around our, our dinner table. So yeah. And when he, 
when he died, that was really the, I remember this one night, the evening before his funeral when our family was gathering. And I remember sitting upstairs in his bedroom and listening to sort of the din of people sitting down and pulling out chairs and passing bowls and filling wine glasses. And in that period, preparing for his death when he was really going internal, Bobby, to your point, I remember kind of wondering, like, what was he thinking about and what was going on on the inside? And there was something about hearing that meal and knowing that, like, he must have been preparing to no longer have a seat at that table and to no longer get to do these sort of, like, very quotidian everyday, normal, seemingly mundane things, but the things that are really like what's best in life. Um, yeah, so it's always, it's been a sacred place for me, which is why when I started to go to grief groups and seek out kind of support and I'd go to these spaces that felt so cold and inhuman and, you know, the circle of metal folding chairs around a tissue box, I was always <laughs> sort of like, this is not the place I want to like right. unbutton my jeans and right. like really kind of dig in for a couple hours yeah. of conversation. Right. Like this feels like I'm at a doctor's appointment and can it be over sooner, please? What promoted you? So obviously there's tons of different types of people and we all deal with things in different ways. And maybe this is too large of a question, but, you know, I want to get into talking about uh, the organization you co-founded, the Dinner Party, of course. But I'm curious to know, as a 21-year-old, like what gave you the motivation to start even attending grief groups? Because you know, a lot of folks could just go inward or push it aside, or not. I mean, that's like it's kind of like a big thing to do, and so especially at 21. To, yeah, at 21. So, like, where where did that come from? Where did that inclination come from for you? Um, my brother and I always joke that he is like the Bart Simpson and I'm the Lisa Simpson. I don't know if that reference tracks, but just like, I've always been just like a extra, do all the things, try to get, try to get the A's, like check all the boxes, which is like my own cross to bear of like performing, people pleasing, bias to action, like all of the things that I talk to my therapist about on the regular. (laughs) Um, and I'd also been in in college, I'd studied social entrepreneurship and this idea that like, what are the ways that we can solve social problems through like new and innovative and creative organizational structures, whether it's, you know, a business like Patagonia solving environmental issues or whether it's a nonprofit. And, um, but I was never sure what my direction would be or what my kind of issue area might be. And when my dad was diagnosed, it felt like a detour, professional detour. I thought I was going in more of like a human rights in the fashion industry direction. That was the job that I'd accepted after college. But the more time I spent in the kind of landscape, the ether of grief as a young person, the more I looked around and was like, where is the creativity and innovation and new thinking and like fresh air in this industry, I guess. I don't, it doesn't always feel like an industry. Um, so I feel like I, I started to go to grief groups, both for like, I need someone to talk to about this crazy thing that just happened that none of my friends have lived through yet. Right. But also with a curiosity of like, what is, what is this like? Like, how are people helping others in this moment? And, you know, I think part of my, part of my burden, part of my like blessing and curse is being someone who is like, let me help myself by actually starting a nonprofit to help other people. Um, And that's, there's complications in that too, for sure, that my co-founder and I talk about a lot, but that's always just kind of been my MO. 
there's a price to pay for everything. So I'm sure there's a totally what's been the advantage to well tell us how it started. Tell us how you this all started. Yeah, we um so I, I my dad died on New Year's Day in twenty ten, which is like an epic day to mm-hmm. die, I always think. First day of a new decade. He was a classy guy. Um, classy day to die. And I immediately, you know, started sniffing around and seeing what what grief resources were available, knowing that, like, I needed something. And had this sort of Goldilocks experience of, like, okay, the grief groups are kind of cold and not places I really want to go. They're, they were also filled with people who are losing parents at a more, like, quote-unquote natural time. So I was in group with women and men in their 50s and 60s and it made me feel at sometimes even more alone and isolated and I did go to some young adult grief groups or I went to a young adult grief group and I remember getting there and there was like a teddy bear that they passed around like a talking stick mm-hmm. and I was just like I am not 12 I could really but I'm not 50 yeah and just kind of feeling like those spaces and run by such kind well-intended people and those groups 1000% save lives. But for me at the time, they just didn't scratch the itch. Um, and I had a really amazing therapist. Um, and I would talk to her about what it was like to go to these groups. And she told me that she had like, you know, dozens of other clients without revealing any confidential details who were sitting in the same chair that I was sitting in, who were experiencing a similar thing of, looking for communities of support, but not really finding anything that fit for this sort of like, not yet a grown ass adult, but no longer a kid, the sort of in between. Um, so, so I started to kind of magnetically connect with other young adults who'd experienced a significant loss. Um, Lennon, my co-founder I met at work, it took us a couple months sitting like side by side at a startup to admit to each other that we both had had a parent die of cancer because we'd both gotten really good at avoiding the topic. Um, I saw on Facebook, a girl I went to high school with dad had died and I was kind of tracking like that there were other people in my world who had experienced loss. So I decided to invite them over for dinner one night and it felt like this kind of, it felt more like a social experiment art project of like, what might happen if we, all of us who are going through our day-to-day lives, holding this story, unable to talk about it in the way that we all would like to for all different kinds of reasons. What if we made that like the, the main dish for, you know, for example, like what if that was the main topic of conversation instead of having to quickly change the subject because we're afraid we're going to make somebody else uncomfortable. So um, I invited folks over and it was like a little bit awkward at first and then we it was a potluck and we I made a dish that my family really loves an arroz con pollo a a Spanish chicken and rice and some of the wines that my dad had worked on in his life and cheers to him and it like kicked off a conversation that I think we were all were like okay exhale what do you do when you're on a date and someone asks you what your parents do and like how do you respond to that without freaking them out or what, how are you dealing with the dynamics of living family members or all of the questions that don't get asked because it wasn't just about like the, the diagnosis or the accident or the cancer, but it was about like, what is it like to move through the world now that this is a part of our story for forever and we don't have many people who get it fully. You can almost imagine how fast everybody was talking just to feel so comfortable and natural. 
Yes. I feel that even with my own people in my own friend circle and some of my best friends have never lost anybody. And it doesn't mean that they can't still be one of my best friends. It doesn't mean that, you know what I mean? There's not a special connection there. And then I have other friends who are some of my closest friends who have lost people. And there's just a way that I connect with those people that is just, it's incomparable. You know what I mean? It's something that I like to understand what it feels like to like lose someone. And then five years later, you wake up in the morning and you're just crying or you see a bird and you're like, don't fly away yet. I have something else I want to tell you. You know what I mean? And how like, like, yeah, me too. Just like the other day, there was this fucking bird that had the same color hair as my dad. I was like, please don't go yet. And then this thing, it just looked at me and it was like, <laughs> it flew off and I was like you fucking asshole I said not yet that's how like, Zara becomes the bird lady in the <laughs> end of Home Alone yes yes that's me that's my style icon but um you know it, to be able to have those people who who you don't have to really explain that to and you're like I saw a bird today and I thought it was my dad they're like yeah totally you know I feel you I saw this squirrel the other day and I thought it was my mom um, it's important to have those people in your life. And then it's, it's so also, I've been on the other ends of having a couple of relationships now, like, you know, romantic relationships with guys who had never lost somebody. And not only that have I, Carla, the first time we met, I told you about the most recent one, but there's been other folks who like, even though they've other folks have been decent people, there's not, they've never been able to really get it. And like, oh, like you're kind of too sad or, oh, I read the essay you wrote about your dad. And like, it was, it just, it was really sad. It made me sad, you know, and like, that's the only language and that's fine. But like, it is so, I guess my point is it's so incredible to be able to find your people because it is important to suss this stuff out. And it doesn't have to be something you necessarily talk about all the time or that's it, or you can, if you want to, but like to be able to really connect with people who get it is huge. It's huge. It's huge. You know, Zara, the best thing, I was thinking a couple of months ago, you had a description of grief where you talked about it, like diving deep under the water. And you talked about this. It was all very visual, your description. And that's what it's like. It's like when you visited that place before, when you've been under the sea and you know what that's like, you want to tell people, you want to say, hey, did you see that? Did you feel how I felt? It's such a different place when you when you experience loss and grief. And it's so important to connect yeah, with other like with people. Yeah, with anything. People who have seen aliens, people who have, you know, we, went to Italy. We are, <laughs> right. we are naturally inclined. Exactly. We are inclined as human beings, I think, to want to connect with folks who have had shared experiences and, and grief is such a specific one. And it's, it's, yes, we want to connect with other people who have been to Italy and been like, oh my God, have you been to Rosholi <laughs> and Rome? It's fabulous. But like, you know, it, but when you're talking about grief, it's like, oh my God, you get this thing. And this it matters on a much deeper level. So it's it's incredible that you did this. So you started the, from this first dinner and then tell us, tell us more. Where did it go from there? Sure. Yeah, I remember in the, I remember the, using the metaphor of like, it's almost like I saw the craziest movie I've ever seen in my whole life. And I have to talk to someone about it right now. Yeah, but like no one great. around me can talk about it, mm-hmm. which is such like a terrible, reductive way to think about it. But it had that kind of energy of like, I don't want to talk about anything other than this crazy thing that I just lived through. So yeah. I want to hang out with people who like just came out of the theater too. Totally. Um, so the first dinner by the, by the end of that evening, and I didn't go into this with like, I'm going to start a nonprofit. And this is like, 
it was very much like my heart is aching and I'm looking for a place where I can have this kind of experience. And I think there are other people who want that too, which I actually think is like the, the best place from which to begin any kind of project or idea. It's not like an imagined situation, but like a real personal longing. Um, at the end of that night where we had like cried and like pissed our pants laughing because of like all of the things that we finally got to talk about. All of the above. And one, all the above. And one of the women who I'd only like hung out with once before spent the night in my bed. It was just like, we'd all been in this amazing, like best first date ever. We decided at the end of the night, like, let's, do you guys want to do this like once a month? Should we keep hanging out? So that initial table met regularly that first year. And, um, one of the people at that first table was Lennon Flowers, who is like this incredible, brilliant army general of a human being who is like really, really committed to bringing important ideas into the world. And after a couple, she was the one who was my coworker and we had both moved to LA with our musician boyfriends and promptly broke up with our musician boyfriends. <laughs> so we're both looking for a place to live. So we ended up moving in together, um, in this big group house. Anyway, I remember one night we were sitting on our porch after we'd done a couple of the dinners and we'd started to kind of hear from other friends and friends of friends who'd heard about it, asking if they could come. And we had this moment of like, we actually think this is like there's something here. There's something here beyond just this group of, we're not the only five people who are creating this kind of space. Um, so we decided to sort of like experiment with what it might be if it was something bigger than one table. Um, so what Lennon flowers and I started to do is basically ask the question, like, what would it look like for us to recreate the magic that we feel around this table with this group of people who are now a group of friends and, what would it take to recreate that feeling? So for a couple of years, whenever we would travel anywhere for work or family, we would kind of put the Facebook post up of like, does anybody want to do this kind of weird, but really amazing thing called, you know, and it wasn't even called the dinner party yet. It was just like having a dinner party to talk about grief and loss. Um, my therapist started to refer clients to me and um, by 2012, about two years in, we were really clear that there was, uh, like a big need here and that we had a really simple, I wouldn't say solution, but like a, a balm or something that could be really helpful and supportive for people. So we had a, as all ideas begin these days, we like did a crowdfunding ca crowdfunding campaign the end of 2012 and um, became a nonprofit and have spent the last seven years really asking this question, like what does it look like to do this work at scale and, and how do we, keep up with the inbound demand that we continue to get from folks who are really craving this kind of connection. And we have about 13,000 people who Ooh. have applied to join a table. And, um, it's before the pandemic, there was a table in at least a table in over a hundred cities in Ooh. the U S and some internationally, which really just, yeah, it goes to show that like, it's just an idea that I think has wants to exist in culture. And we've just been the people to kind of lay the train tracks down to figure out how to, how to let it come in. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, the importance of the, when I think about how much, and we talked about this often on the show, but when I really think about how deeply we deny 
grief and death and push it away. And it's so, it makes it, and I also say this often, so apologies if I'm repeating myself listeners, but it adds this like insult to injury element to the whole thing. It is very hard to lose somebody that you love. It's traumatic. It's awful. It really stays with you forever and changes you as we spoke about earlier in the show. But then to like, A, have to come about it by some kind of surprise because you've never really been prepared for it or really been allowed to spend largely. No training. Yeah. But yeah, like all the things that we learn in school, you know, that we don't use. And it's just so odd to me how there's no mention of just like, hey, like this is something that literally happens to every person, every one of you. We'll have this. It's a and natural then beyond, experience. Right. Then beyond not having any preparation for it, when it actually does happen, it's like, shh, you know, don't talk about this. And like, you're meant to feel strange. And the younger you are that it happens, the stranger you're meant to feel, which is so mm-hmm. awful. It's so wrong. And it makes it like this thing that like, when I hear people from other countries and in other cultures talk about how they are raised to deal with death and dying, you know, just even in Mexico and the the traditions of the Dia de los Muertos and the celebration and remembering of the dead and all this like consciousness around lost loved ones and like celebration. It's just so, I don't know, it just makes me think about how we deal with the death and grief in America as being, it's a real missed opportunity and that mm-hmm. we, you know, kind of sanitize it and sweep it under the rug like everything else. What's, what's been, one of the things I've learned in doing this work is like, there couldn't even be a playbook for it though. Like I remember after my dad died being like, okay, when is one of my aunts or uncles going to take me aside and be like, this is what you do now. But what would have worked for them in the generation that they grew up in and the cultural context that they're in wouldn't work for me. In fact, you know, I have had some really interesting, sometimes harsh, but just very verifying conversations with my grandfather where he's like, why are you still talking about this? Why are you having parties about this? Like, brush it off, walk it off. So I, I think that there's what's happening around the dinner party tables. And this wasn't by design. It was just like what came forward was like, oh, this is the place where we come together to normalize what we're going through, to realize like, oh, it's not actually that weird that I still wear my dad's sweatshirt or it's not actually that weird that like, I don't know, I can think of a million different like examples and what happens around the table is like the normalization and also the confidence building that like whatever is feeling good for you, as long as it's not harmful to yourself and others is okay. And is your version of like metabolizing what happened and moving your way through. And we talk a lot about like being your own best expert and how most of the spaces in the grief world are run by experts who are are run by people who we might defer to, who might be an authority, who might kind of have the answers in some cases, but Bobby, as you know, it's like, there is no one right answer. Like there is no one course of action. It's about getting to be in a space where you can exhale and realize that like, it's up to each of us to figure out our own way through. And we're not alone when we're going through it, even if it might look different for me than it did for you, Zara, or for you, Bobby. And And teach each other because in a group, you know, you also hear what other people are doing and that can, the, the differences and the similarities can help you grow. You know, sometimes there are differences that you wouldn't Mm -hmm. do it their way. And other times you learn from them. I noticed, um, 
your website is wonderful, and I thought you had wonderful resources, and I was particularly interested in the when you talk about grief rituals. And I think we we kind of they're very individual grief rituals, but by telling somebody your ritual, it it opens up the possibilities for somebody else to create their own. So that's where sharing really comes makes a difference, right? Totally. I know we talk about it almost like a gateway drug that you <laughs> people might not feel comfortable going to a more traditional grief group, but yes, they will come to this kind of cool supper club thing. And once they're there, they can share resources about, you know, the yoga studio that was helpful or the therapist that they found or whatever the ritual is or care practice that they've developed for themselves. And um, we're really clear that it's not a place to give advice. And yet it ends up being a place where people can expand like their consciousness around how they're thinking about their own grief process and and then come back and talk about how it went and have like an audience and a community of like actually that person sucked or actually that felt terrible or that felt good last week but this week it didn't feel good anymore what's wrong with me and about having a community of people who are like with you through the ups and downs of of figuring your way through yeah how much um does the food play into it? Like how, I, I guess I'm curious to know more about that. Like, do people talk about what they brought? Is the, you know what I mean? Like can talk to us a little bit about the food element. Yeah. So at the beginning, the food element was really important to me and I was a little bit precious about it. Um, it was, this idea was hatched in, in Los Angeles at a time where there was definitely like a culinary food world renaissance going on. It was like, when the food truck scene was taking off and I think about like the Koji truck and Korean tacos and everyone was like thinking creatively and differently about how we might share food with each other. And there were more and more sort of like underground supper clubs. Like I'm thinking about wolf's mouth or outstanding in the field. We're all kind of starting around this time. And in the early days, I feel like this project kind of was in that, not nearly as like beautiful or well-crafted as some of those projects, but it was sort of had that spirit of, of the food being a really important part. And oftentimes people would bring dishes to the potluck that had a story and we would allow, you know, it was very cool to be able to introduce your person to the table, not just based on the fact that they had died of brain cancer at age 56, but the fact that they had very much been alive and that there were meals that they loved and dishes that they cooked and it was like a, we talk a lot about having a, a third thing or a way to introduce the conversation at a little bit of a slant that's not just like on the nose, who died when and how, but who was this person? So, and yet lives are busy. And for that first table, for example, while maybe we shared our like, you know, beautiful family dishes in the first few dinners by like year two, everyone's like, I'm going to be coming from work. I'm probably going to be 10 minutes late. I'm going to stop at the liquor store and get some ice cream. Or like, can we just get a pizza? Or like, how do we not have this feel like more work? Like we're all zapped. And so we've definitely had some dinners where it's like, everyone ends up just bringing a pint of ice cream and it's like a pile of spoons in the middle of the table. It happened by accident once and it was fucking awesome. I was like, this is the best. Um, So, and it's been interesting with with virtual virtual reality which we're all living in now um we were really kind of concerned at the beginning of the pandemic that we had this beautiful 
solution to support people who are grieving in a time when our nation was like, oh, grief is a thing. It's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the whole concept was based on like being able to like go inside a stranger's home and like, you know, socialize. So we were kind of worried, like, is this going to hold? But people just started meeting on Zoom quickly. Tables like immediately transitioned themselves. And we're like, okay, I guess this is going to work. And it's a little bit awkward eating on Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like the best. It's not the same feeling as right. like filling up someone's wine glass or like passing them a plate when you're like just. And you're not like, sharing the food. The yeah, yeah. You're not sharing <laughs> the food. <laughs> yeah. So we've heard of some tables that will like all make a grilled cheese together before they join their table or we'll bring like a mocktail or a cocktail. So we'll see. It presents a little bit of a branding crisis for us because the whole thing is called the dinner party. And we're like, oh, at the end of the day, it's not actually about the food. It's about the relationships that are forming around the table. Um, But I think it still is the heart and soul of what makes this kind of space different than other spaces. For sure. Well, when you're talking about, you know, that third element, I mean, that's definitely like we can connect to that. That's why we started processing because I think the connection between food and grief is food is a great way to disarm the conversation around grief, you know, to, mm. to folks who might be like, oh, I don't really want to just a talk about just my story of grief necessarily, or I don't want to listen to just a story about grief. Like where is something that I can, where is some kind of human thread uh, in there? That's a, yes. a, that's a bit disarming. But it's interesting because, you know, uh, you guys have kind of just disarmed the conversation now naturally to the point where people are like, oh, a grief group, a a group of young folks like myself who have a similar thing to talk about. I need this, too. And this is like a safe space. And you I mean, as much as I think that the food element of it is great, and I hope that continues for you guys with the dinner parties, it's almost sounding a little bit like you're saying that like the concept of the dinner party that emotional state you're in when you're in a warm convivial space sharing and cheersing and you know kind of unwinding over some food and some drinks uh the spirit is alive so much that perhaps that that, the physical nature of that doesn't have to be going on which is a really incredible thing totally yeah and we're we're starting to see tables are starting to get back together again in person and each table sort of can use their own discernment. We're not matching in person tables yet, but we're matching folks based on their location so that in the future they could meet together in person. And I do think I look forward to the day because to me, one of the most radical things about this work is like, what is it like to actually bring pleasure into conversations about grief and these aren't just conversations that should happen in like healthcare settings right. with like cold linoleum floors. Like what does it mean to activate senses and to dim the lights and to like have there be a feeling of like exactly what you said, Zara, the convivial to talk about things that have kind of been kept in a specific corner that most people don't really want to go and hang out in for that long. So I hope we can get back to in person soon. Yeah, I think that like, you know, kind of going back to like it not having to always, it doesn't always have to be this hard. You know what I mean? It doesn't always have to be this specific level of there is, there are ways to learn and grow and uh, have all kinds of nuanced experiences within this process of loss and grieving. Um, And as you, you know, mentioned earlier about privilege, obviously that speaks to a certain amount of privilege as well when that can happen. Um, but, 
uh, I think that the possibility is there in lots of ways. And I think um, finding the little wins, whatever, however small they may be, the little moments of, of joy that you can reclaim and whatever it is. And often for people, that's food, right? Like a delicious bite of something. Or, you know, today I've been in a really dark place and I just walked down my street and saw like the beautiful leaves that were changing. And I just stood and looked at a, this red tree. And then I stood and looked mm -hmm. at a yellow tree and the blue sky. And I was like, wow, this is really beautiful. This is a tiny moment. Tuck this in your pocket. Uh, doesn't mean everything has to be great, but you know, there are we, little wins. And I think we're talking about the duality, right? That's it. It's the duality in our life. We have, you know, bitter and sweet and pain and pleasure and heaven and hell, you know, all on the head of a pin. And I think so that's where the, the joy of being together with people talking about something that's so hard. So I was thinking the mm -hmm. same thing, just the duality of things. Mm. And, and we do, uh, part of an important kind of, I wouldn't call it a disclaimer, but a learning is like, it's not for everybody. You know, there's definitely people who come to us who really do need to be in more clinical settings and have more one-on-one -on -one support. Um, Lennon and I always joke that her brother is, he's a big yogi. And at the beginning he was like, this is terrible. That sounds like a nightmare. I don't want to sit around and talk about my feelings with a bunch of strangers, like fuck off. And he had a really deep yoga practice, which is like where he went to, you know, learn his own way of tending to himself after their mom died. He's now come and he's like converted. He came <laughs> around, but um, it's, it's important to, to note that like, you know, this is a compliment to all kinds of other things that are available. And it feels cool to be a part of something that's like peer care isn't a nice to have like a soft thing. It's actually a critical piece of the wellness puzzle and of a healthy, you know, grief experience puzzle is having people who you can talk to about it. And yet we're not all ready or all willing all the time to go there. You know, I've even had times in the building of this organization where I'm like, I don't want to talk about this. I've had to like, to, you know, take a lap and, and not attend the dinners because I've needed my relationship to my dad and my grief to be more private or to be metabolized in different ways. And it just feels like another tool in the toolkit, as we love to talk about these days, that um, I'm really glad exists now for the people who've been able to find it. Yeah, that's lovely. So towards the end of each show, Carla, we always like to ask folks the same question, which is, you know, if you could have told yourself at the beginning of this grief process, uh, kind of wherever you see yourself needing this advice from your older self, um, and if you could give yourself that little younger person a bit of advice, knowing what you know now, uh, what would that be? It's a good question. Um, I think in my personal instance, Lennon and I pretty quickly after losing our parents went into this entrepreneurial state of mind of like must build this thing to create support systems for other people. And I think there were definitely chapters that we did that at the, at the risk of our own self-care. Um, so I feel like I would tell myself to chill, just chill, like, you know, sitting, I, I know for sure that there were times working on this, building this organization that was like a avoidance of what was actually going on for both of us personally. And I mean, it's like a healthy coping mechanism, I suppose, to like uh, build a thing. But uh, I think there were definitely times where I wish I could have been like, why don't you go on a vacation or like, don't spend your Saturday running a grief group, but actually 
just go be held somewhere yourself. That's important. So That's important to, all my, to all my overachieving Lisa Simpsons out there, go like, you know, drink a glass of wine or smoke a joint or eat a brownie <laughs> and chill. Totally. It's funny that you mentioned Lisa Simpson because I actually just was listening to Yardley Smith on a podcast the other day and she was talking about her love for, you know, her character of Lisa Simpson and what, what Lisa meant to her. And it's very, it's just interesting you said that because it's, it is that overachieving, but good hearted, sweet. Yeah. And yeah, totally. I want you to bring up one other thing. You talked about the workplace program. Can you just tell us a little more about that? Cause it sounds like something you're excited about now. I'm so excited about it. Never in a million years did I think I'd be excited about grief in the workplace. It sounds like the most boring intersection of things imaginable, but it's so fascinating and there's so much to do within it. Um, I There's always themes that come up around the dinner party table and one of them is going back to work after a loss. And we heard from so many people that going back to work was super helpful and like a place to take their mind off of what was going on at home, a place to rebuild confidence, to focus, to have community. And we also hear from a lot of people who are like, screw that. My employer said that they were like all about people, but the most human thing just happened to me. And my 24 year old manager, like can't even look me in the eyes. And so many other examples of like, you know, being told to take as much time as you need, or let me know if you need anything, but no actual systemic systems of like, protocol or support for what to do when someone's grieving. So we've been building over the last five years, a really, it's pretty simple in what like the output is. It's a training program. We do talks and trainings and workshops and design labs with organizations that are wanting to get their act together a little bit around what it looks like to support grieving people. And it's not just about like, how do we be nice to the grievers? It's about how do we run effective teams when inevitably, like not if, but when someone on our team is, has experienced a loss. And it's been very cool to see the idea kind of take off, especially during the COVID era. I feel like COVID was, you know, our nation got hit over the head with the frying pan of grief and loss. And finally people are like, oh, this is something we can't deny anymore. And we don't keep our feelings in a lockbox at home when we come into the workplace and we actually now work at home and um, the sort of the, the boundaries that have been fraying between those different worlds means that uh, organizations are starting to get ready to talk about like, okay, we have a grieving workforce. What do we need to do to support them? So um, it's been very cool. We've been working with a bunch of different types of communities and networks and companies and organizations. Um, we're right now working with a network of mental health providers within schools. We've been working with um, a county in Oregon and their social work staff. And then we've also been working with like tech companies and a record label. And because as you guys know, grief isn't like only hitting employers that work with essential workers, the grief is hitting every single person. So yeah, I'm excited to see where the body of work goes and, there's been some really interesting mobilization happening on lots of different levels. Um, there was a, a clause that got cut from Biden's Build Back Better plan that would actually require federal federally mandated bereavement leave because currently there is no federal mandate. Someone can go to their boss and say that their child was murdered and if they don't show up to work the next day, they can be lawfully fired. 
So we're working to change those things. And like, no wonder we live in a death denying grief, illiterate culture, because like the government doesn't even see it as like a legit enough experience that would warrant like a day off, let alone like a week off. So I get fired up about this because yeah. I'm, I feel like the deeper we go into this work, the more we're realizing that there is like policy systemic things in place that are making it hard for the individual. You know, people come to the dinner party because they feel alone and they don't feel like they know who to talk to and they feel like they're doing it wrong. And it's not on that person. Like they're, they're living in a nation that has been turning a blind eye to the most human of experiences and, I'm just really happy there's like a crowd gathering now to start to do this work, but we definitely need more help. Absolutely. And it's a good opportunity to realize um, that this is what happens when we elect officials who are pretty much only privileged who, when they do have, if, if, you know, grief and tragedy does touch them, they can take the time, they can pay the people, they don't have to worry or maybe never have had to worry about what it means to lose your job and not know how to find another one and have three jobs. And like, you know what I mean? So I'm just to add a little asterisk to that. I feel like it's just such an important thing to to try to elect people who have had more real real lives, you know? And then we can get some of this very important, important kind of legislation through because it really is important. It really is so meaningful. And to like, imagine what that would feel like. I mean, to just have to get thrown back in after having a a trauma or a loss like that. It's, it's unbelievable. We had a, I'll tell you after the show, but we had um, a wonderful guest on last year who is very involved in this as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we should thank you guys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that if any president is going to get this, it's it's Biden, given his own experiences with grief. So my my hope for us is that we don't clog up the work so badly in decision-making that nothing gets done around it. And it's also interesting to see business leaders um, pay attention to this when they have their own grief experiences. Like, we really look to the Sheryl Sandberg case study. It wasn't until her husband dropped dead that she was like, you know what, let me look and see what we're doing for grief and bereavement. They rolled out like probably the most progressive leave that we had ever seen, but it required the person who's literally in charge of the operations of that entire multiverse of Facebook to lose her husband, to realize that like maybe it needed to get bumped up in the priority list. So of course, of course. Yeah. And that's a shame because it would, the goal would be that we could kind of, you know, use our own like humanity to have these systems in place, even if it didn't personally touch us, but it is, you know, either way, it's good. It's good that there's a ball rolling in some facet because it is really important. And we really salute you and your, um, championing, 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 championing it. Yeah. Championing <laughs> it. It's a new word. Um, I'm championing it. <laughs> but you know, the work, the workplace is a community, right? And, you know, we always like to quote Viktor Frankl mm. all the time <laughs> and his, his thing. Um, Love sur- a Viktor Frankl quote. Do sur- it, Bobby, survival do Survival is a community event. So we need all our communities, whether mm. it's our age group community, whether it's our church community, whether it's our school community, our work community, our family community. That's where we survive in our communities. So that's really cool. By the way, I also mm. want to mention that your website is fantastic. There's great resources on there. And for our listeners, the book list is phenomenal. I mean, I'm, I'm one, I've worked at many hospices and there's always these book lists that are just these old books written. I mean, not that old books aren't good, but there's so many 
people saying so many wonderful things and insightful things. And you had a wonderful book list and you also had other resources on there. Um, so I, I tell all of our listeners to check out the website, whether you're 80 or whether you're in the 20 to 30, 40 range, because it's really great resources. We've got a, one, one of our resources is a being there guide. We often get asked by people like, Perhaps you haven't experienced a loss directly, but you want to know how to show up for friends or family who have. And there's some things on there for you, too. And we're always open to adding new things. So if there's something that feels missing there, please let us know and we can spin it up. Great. Uh, so as we wrap up the show, we also, you know, since we can't all be together right now um, to share a meal, but that would be the ideal that we'd wrap this show up and have a, a meal together. We always like to ask folks, what would we bring to our dinner together? Or lunch, breakfast, it could be anything. But if we were to all share a meal, what would we all bring? Bobby, do you have something in mind? Well, I do. I happened to, I was watching Seinfeld last night, an episode, and I was watching the one where Kramer started the, the Jewish Singles Club. I don't know if you remember that one. And George's father, you know, he had him cook. But what I remember most about it was standing out was the stuffed cabbage that was stuck in the elevator. And somebody came in and said, is there a dead animal in the elevator? It's a great episode, by the way, for dinner parties, uh, dinner groups. But I would make stuffed cabbage because my mother was Bobby, Hungarian. Again? Yes. I did make it recently. <laughs> it's a classic. Bobby, you make stuffed cabbage to every... We uh, have talked about this. No, no more stuffed I cabbage. Would, I would bring stuffed cabbage. <laughs> Yum. I mean, I'll take it. I love stuffed cabbage. Delicious. Okay, Fabulous. Carla, do you have something in mind? I think if it was today, I'm feeling kind of like uh, burnt out and tired at the end of the year. And I would assemble more of a board, I think. I think my family is Spanish and most meals start, like big family gatherings start with like some triangles of manchego, some chorizo, maybe like an olive, a marcona almond, and um, a bottle of wine. So I'd have the kind of like appetizer cheese board thing figured out for us. Mm, how fabulous. I love that. Um, because it's fall and there's some really gorgeous radicchio, which is kind of my favorite thing. And I'm, a, I'm really a salad kind of guy. I would bring like a big, delicious, like overflowing salad of uh, some nice like Castle de Franco radicchio and all those yummy radicchios you only get this very specific time of year. Um, some apples, some Parmigiano, and then we could take, use the like large, big leaves of radicchio and kind of stuff some stuffed cabbage in it, a little dollop of sour cream and make like a mm. perfect little handheld bite. Okay. That's what I would do. I like to eat with my hands. So, okay. Fantasy meal time is my new favorite game. <laughs> I know it's fun, right? Carla, thank you so much. And can you just tell our listeners before we go, um, any upcoming projects? Where can we find you? What are your social media handles, etc.? So the dinnerparty.org is our website and we're probably most active on Instagram and that is at the dinner party. And we are opening, I think one last batch of tables before the end of the year. If you want to sign up, we're also in the middle of our obligatory end of year crowdfunding campaign. Um, so you can find out about that on our social media or our website if you feel compelled to make a tax deductible donation. And me personally, um, my personal website is carlafernandez.co. My email's on there and my Instagram is Carlita Fernandez. And we'd love to hear from folks and yeah, hope to see you around the virtual or in-person dinner party table someday. 
Nice. Awesome. We really look forward to just seeing what else you do. It was so wonderful to connect with you. What a, a really great chat. And thank you because I, you know, I know that telling your story at all is difficult. And also having told it so many times, you know what I mean? As you must have, and been so kind of open about your own experience, your own struggle, like to retell it doesn't necessarily make it any easier and to go there and continue to share and to have that like openness is a big ask. So we really appreciate you taking the time to share that and to go to that space and to tell us about your dad. And we also just want to mention and hopefully not too quickly, but just uh, that you mentioned before the show that your grandmother passed away a couple of weeks ago at the age of 95, right? She did in her sleep. May we all be so lucky. Mm -hmm. Well, we just wanted to offer our, you know, a hug and our, our sympathies about that you know even if someone's old it doesn't make it like less significant of what their life is like and their importance too so we're so sorry to hear about your grandma thanks for saying that yeah it's it's um very feels very healthy to get an imprint of what it feels like to have someone die at a ripe age and yet at the same time it's there's a there's duality in that too it's you know it's not you know we don't have any grandparent lost tables within the dinner party community unless someone's grandparent was like their guardian and a parent more of a parental relationship and it's been really interesting to lose my grandmother in the last few weeks and be like wow this is 1000 percent hard grief too mm-hmm. and um it's giving me deeper empathy for we joke about people like oh i know what it's like my grandmother died and you're like oh, he was my husband or that was my parent um yeah it's 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 helping me kind of reframe some of the language that I've used in the past around grandparent loss and like still grief still still grief it is we actually just did an episode with a dear friend of mine Mary O'Malley maybe like three episodes back right uh in which we talked all about grandparent grief and it was really Mm -hmm. interesting her perspective Mm -hmm. on grandparent grief and I found it really helpful and interesting because it's kind of a disenfranchised grief that like is almost like when someone you know what I mean? Like, oh, well, big deal. You know what I mean? They were old. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, well, you know. Yeah, and my mom things. lost her mom this month. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, there's a lot within it. And it's just a constant reminder that, like, we never know, you know. there's a, It's easy to make assumptions, but it's this work just makes me, like, real humble. Mm-hmm. Each time, each conversation, I'm like, there's so much to learn. And each experience is different. And we just got to keep listening. So we'll make a toast to humility, right? A toast to humility. That's a good word. That's a great toast. I think like also somebody asked me the other day, like, why do you like love certain people? Like, why do we fall in love with people? How do we choose these people? I think, you know, a huge part of it is like who we are in those relationships. What we're able to offer is so significant in how we like love and are in love with other people. You know what I mean? And I think that like that same thing goes for our loved ones, maybe not romantic partners, but just like our relationship. Like who have I been this whole time with my grandparents? You know what I mean? And when they pass, it's like also mourning your whole experience with that person and that part of you that is like now forever changed. So, Mm. you know, that can be so different. Like with and it doesn't necessarily matter like and in terms of romantic relationships or heartbreak you know you can say well you guys only dated for two months but like what was your expectation what was your what was this like saying to you and you're dealing with that 
death and that passing too. And the same thing I think goes for romance. Well, we could talk about loss forever. Don't you think we we are truly grief nerds. I really like that word. (laughs) I'm stuck on that. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Totally. Yes. Thank you. Thanks. Grief, grief nerds unite. And, um, hopefully we'll get to talk again. Yeah. Hopefully I, I look forward to it. Carla. Thank you so much. Thanks everybody. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.